1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 30. Humble David and proud Goliath. Hear now God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word given for our prophet, 1 Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shokoch, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shokoch and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on the one side and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had an helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye the servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. And he had eight sons, and the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three eldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next unto him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. And David was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near morning and evening. The Philistine drew near, and, drew near morning and evening and presented himself forty days. And Jesse said unto David his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn, and these ten loaves, and run to the camp to thy brethren, and carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul, and they, and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning, and left the sheep with a keeper, and took and went as Jesse had commanded him, 
And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to the fight and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran into the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came up the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines, and spake according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him, and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have ye seen this man that is come up? Surely to defy Israel is he come up. And it shall be that the man who killeth him, the king will enrich him with great riches, and will give him his daughter, and make his father's house free in Israel. And David spake to the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine, and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine, that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner, saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart, for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him toward another and spake after the same manner, and the people answered him again after the former manner. Thus far the reading of God's holy word from 1 Samuel 17, the first 30 verses. Verses 1 through 11, we have Goliath's greatness and blasphemy and Israel's fear. You'll see there in your bulletins a small version of a map which gives us the basic places we're going to look at in this chapter. The Philistines pitched between Shokoch and Azekah. You will see them right in the center left of the oval, the red oval there. You have Azekah and Shokoch. And these places they pitched in between those two. Now these are part of Judah's inheritance mentioned in Joshua chapter 15. They're about two or three miles apart from each other. It might look very small on the map, but that's about two or three miles between Azekah and Shokoch. Now Gath, the city where the giant was from, you'll see over to the left or to the west of Shokoch and Azekah. That is about approximately five or six miles from where the battle would have been. Also, David being from Bethlehem, if you look to the right side or the far east of the circle, you will notice Bethlehem far off, comparatively speaking. Bethlehem was about 15 or 16 miles east from the battle. Now, it's likely that the Philistines are seeking vengeance. If you recall from chapter 14, Jonathan and the people of Israel consumed them. Now, Saul was very foolish and he did something that no military commander could, should do. He forbid his men from eating, 
And because of that, they didn't have the final breaking of the Philistines, and now it's coming back to haunt Israel. So the partial obedience and folly of Saul lead to additional suffering on the behalf of his people, and that's what this is all about. Verse 2 tells us that Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah. This means the valley of the oak. In fact, when David goes to get the sword of Goliath from the priest at Nob, he mentions this in chapter 21, verse 19, that he slew him in the valley of Elah. Verse 3 tells us that the Philistines stood on a mountain on the other side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side, each fearing, as they had prior experience, of the power of the army of the other, they were afraid to come forth into full combat. It says in verse 4 that there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines. It's very interesting the way that this word champion is translated in the Septuagint. It says he's a man of might or of power. Jerome in his Vulgate says he is a vir spurious. It means a bastard, in other words. He has no cause for what he's saying. But it literally means in Hebrew a man who is between two. If you've ever heard the, the term dueling, do is two. Dueling is when two men fight in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and that's exactly what this man does. Junius says because he challenged any hand-to-hand, -hand, that the combat might be between two. In fact, this word champion, according to Webster's Dictionary, is a man who undertakes a combat in the place or cause of, a, of another, a man who fights in his own cause in a duel, a hero, a brave warrior, hence one who is bold in contest. He is a champion, a dueler, a mighty man of valor. He is called Goliath of Gath. Now if you recall from the book of Joshua, when he studied this, God gave the inheritance and Caleb himself said that he would go and do what to the Anakims? He would drive them out. And do you remember, where did the sons of Anak go? Where did they end up? Well, partially, they ended up in Gath, also in Gaza and Ashdod. This is an old feud, we might say. The people of Judah have driven them out, and here they are attacking Judah again and again. And here is Goliath, the son of Anak, fighting against those who dispossessed his people from their land. In other words, he is a godless patriot, one who loves his nation but is an idolater, a secular patriot, we might say. This man was a giant. His height was six cubits and a span. Now this, depending on how high a cubit is, somewhere between 18 and 21 inches, this could be somewhere between 9 foot 9 inches or up to 11 feet and 1 inch with the span being another half cubit on top of the 6 cubits. He's massive. He was armed with a coat of mail or literally of scales. You know how fish have little scales so things can't penetrate? This man had scales that he wore upon his body so that no one could throw a javelin, hit him with a dagger, none of those things. If you drew a bow against him, it would bounce off his scales. In fact, the weight of his coat is 5,000 shekels of brass. 
Now ordinarily the shekel of silver is about a quarter of an ounce, but a shekel of brass or iron is about a half an ounce each. That would give us about 156 and a quarter pounds just for his coat of mail. He must have been massive and mighty, tall and strong, given great defenses. Look there at verse 6. He had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders, well supplied with protection for his torso, for his legs, for his neck, with all kinds of power and strength in his body to carry weight, perhaps up to 600 pounds of equipment on his body and with his spear. The staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, thick, heavy, solid wood. Now we read of Hector of Troy, when he had a spear, the man would have been of ordinary stature, and his spear was 16 feet long. Can you imagine how long Goliath's spear must have been? It could have been as much as 26 or 30 feet long just for his spear. And the head of his spear, that is the metal tip, was 600 shekels of iron. Now, if you've ever seen an axe, you'll know that axes are ordinarily between two and five pounds. If you have a five pound axe, it's pretty heavy. And if you swing that axe and you try to work it, boy, it's gonna be hard. Now imagine 30 feet out in front of you on a massive beam, you have another axe head, you might say, but not a four pound axe, not a five pound axe, not a seven pound axe, 19 pounds on the end of this giant spear. This man is larger than life. He is invincible. His defenses are impregnable. His strength, without question, he could crush anyone. He even had an armor bearer who went before him with a shield, well supplied, high and mighty. I note then this doctrine. God's enemies are powerful. They are well supplied. They have good defenses. But they are exalted in their pride. This is their Achilles heel. They seem unassailable. It seems that they cannot be defeated. There's nothing you can do. And here, the Westminster Annotations note the following. This is brought to show the vanity of all human strength when it is at its highest and God's almighty power who is able to quell by such weak means. That's what the contrast is. Goliath is prideful. He exalts in himself. He trusts in his strength. He trusts in his armor. And what does David have? <laughs> what am I, a dog, he's going to say? You come to me with staves, like I'm some kind of animal to be corralled? Goliath is the secular or false patriot. Yes, he loves his country. Yes, he loves his people. Yes, he wants his land back. But by what means will he obtain his supposed patriotism? By lawless, wicked, and idolatrous means. That's how. His strength is from below. It is sensual. It is demonic. His confidence is in himself. And what is his end? Perdition. He is to be destroyed 
as a sheep for the slaughter. Let us then reckon with the power of our enemies. We must understand that they are high, that they are mighty, that they seem that they cannot be defeated. But do we lose hope? No. Let us see the power of our enemies only in the light of the greater power of God Almighty. Let us never be dismayed. We wrestle not with flesh and blood. God is greater than all the forces of earth and of hell. Goliath defies the armies of God, verse 8. Why are you come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine and ye servants to Saul? Do you notice the parallel, how he switches it? What is the opposite in this case of a Philistine? An Israelite, right? Am I not a Philistine and ye Israelites? Is that what he says? No. To be an Israelite is to be a slave, a base slave, ruled by King Saul. That's what you are. This is a taunt, an arrogant taunt. All you Israelites have no power. You're just a bunch of slaves. Now, he says, choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. Here he is, the man between two, the champion, the dueler. Let's settle this once and for all. We don't need to spill any more blood. Just me and one other man, bring him down, and if we win and I crush him, which I most certainly will, then you will be our slaves, and vice versa. We will be your slaves if he defeats me. Choose you a man. He's so confident of his success that the terms of his covenant are very generous. We'll be your slaves. We'll be paying tribute to you. We'll be following orders from you. The Philistine then says in verse 10, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Literally, he says, I defied. I've already done it. I've already reproached you. I've already taunted and spoken sharply. I've scorned you. I've despised you. Now what will you do about it? That's his question. Johannes Piscator says, And Goliath is proposed an example of arrogance and of a perverse faith in one's own strength and pride in contemning the pious and the true religion. When he defies the armies of the living God, who is he defying? Who is the Lord of those armies? The Lord of hosts is his name. That's who he's defying and the people who trust in him or ought to trust in him. But do they? No, they do not. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul, David's brothers, the whole host of Israel, they're afraid and in some ways we understand that. Could you imagine an 11-foot man armed with hundreds of pounds of armor upon his body with a spear so long, the beam itself being about 19 pounds? Can you imagine coming against such a man? The Westminster Annotations, again, here they discovered both their infidelity, that is, their lack of faith, in not believing God's promises, that if they trusted in him and walked in his ways, one of them should chase a thousand of their enemies. Do you remember this in Deuteronomy 28? If you listen to me and you keep my commandments 
and you do what is pleasing in my eyes, he says, one of you shall chase a thousand and ten of you ten thousand. Now remember also, how many people were with Jonathan when he started that great war? Who was it? It was him and his armor bearer against a garrison of the Philistines. Didn't they see God work and deliver them already? Hadn't they already had proof very recently of the power of God? Where is Jonathan at this time? They're all cowering. Every last one of them. Which brings us to verses 12 through 22, David's humble circumstances and his diligent service. David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse. Now, we've heard of David before. In fact, we've read that he was anointed king, that he went to the court of Saul, that he played the harp for him. And as we'll see, this is subsequent to that. Some wish to invert the history and say, no, this is telling us what happened before. No, it's not. We'll see. He went home from being with Saul. So this is not before the events that we've already read. This is after. But God is reintroducing David to us. Do you know why? What is significant about being from the tribe of Judah? What is significant about being from the house of bread, Bethlehem? What is significant about being from Ephrata? do you know? Well, have you read in the book of Ruth? Didn't it tell us that there would be a man, Jesse, who would descend from Obed, who would have a son named David, who would be what? King of Israel. Hadn't Jacob, our father, prophesied that Judah was what? A lion's whelp. The kingdom was coming through Judah. Here God reestablishes David, the beloved one of God. That's what David means. He is the son of the wealthy man from the house of bread. This is the coming king. This is the anointed of God. His father Jesse went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. He was too ancient to fight, and so he sent his sons. Three of them are named, the third being Shammah, elsewhere called Shimea, as in 2 Samuel 13 and in 2 Samuel 21. David, though, was the youngest, contrasted with his brothers, and the great stature, strength, and exaltation of Goliath here is this little boy, this little shepherd boy. David had returned, it says in verse 15, he went and returned from Saul. He had been there with him. And here it says, this is subsequent to his return from the court of Saul. He's now called back to duty in the army, not to fight, but to do what? To be a messenger boy, to take some goods to pay off some debts his brothers might have, to salute them and wish them well and take some cheese. That's his job. That's his duty. He was feeding his father's sheep at Bethlehem after he returned from the courts of Saul. Now, do you remember when David was anointed? What was he doing? Do you remember? Samuel had seven sons before him of Jesse. None of them were the anointed of God. What was David doing? Oh, oh yeah, I have one more son. That's right. He's out feeding the sheep. You want me to call him in? Calls him in and he's anointed king. What does David go back to doing after he leaves the great and mighty court of his king Saul? Well, he feeds sheep. Though anointed as king over Israel, what's he doing? Obeying the tasks his father gave him to do. 
let us learn to be content with the lot that providence assigns to us. Oh, I'm too good for that. I'm too smart for this. I'm too mighty for this. My position of exaltation and wisdom makes me so far above feeding sheep. I've been to the court. Samuel the prophet anointed me to be the king over his heritage. You expect me to feed sheep? Is that the attitude of David? Is he too great? No, he is not. He humbles himself and obeys his father's will, just as the greater son of David would do. We may be high, but we may later be brought low. We must have confidence that God in his goodness, in his kindness, in his wisdom, assigns a spot for us. Let us then work diligently. Let us work humbly at the tasks he sets before us. Now, while David is doing his slave work, the Philistine again drew near. He is called the Philistine, not a Philistine. Goliath is the Philistine of Philistines. Man in his essential Philistinehood, abandoned by God, mighty in himself, blaspheming the name of God, doomed to destruction. He is the Philistine. He presented himself for 40 days. Osiander comments on this. The more the Israelites were in fear and the greater that their perplexity was, the more famous was the victory and deliverance which they did not expect. Did they send out anyone to duel with Goliath in that whole 40-day period? No. They're waiting for their doom. That's what they're waiting for. Now Jesse said to his son David, verse 17, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn. The Geneva Bible notes that though Jesse meant one thing, yet God's providence directed David to another end. And this is the story of our lives. Men have purposes, they have plans, they have commands, they issue orders, they have things they'd like to accomplish. And what happens to those things? Do they get accomplished as men intend? God has a different purpose and praise him that he does. Jesse says, look how thy brethren fare and take their pledge. If they've become indebted, if they've pledged or pawned their goods, redeem them, take their pledge for them, pay off their debts. Now, do you remember that these are David's elder brothers? And do you remember what we read about Eliab? What was his attitude toward David? Did he love David? Did he encourage him as an older brother ought to do to his younger or even his youngest brother? Oh, I know your pride. I know why you're here. You want to come and see the fight. You should be back with those sheep in the wilderness. Who'd you leave them with? Does David return in kind? He does not. David loves even his enemies, even his brother, his taunting, despising, pride-filled brother Eliab, he still serves him. He still looks out for his welfare. He still salutes him or literally inquires after his shalom. How does it go with you? How is your peace? How is your welfare? Let us learn to do good even to those who despise us, who mistreat us, who may even persecute us for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we are like fa our Father in heaven. Does he just do good to his friends, to those that love him and serve him? No. 
He sends rain on wicked men as well as on just men. God is good to all and we are to imitate him in this as David does. David rose up early in the morning. He left sheep with a keeper of sheep. He took and went as Jesse had commanded him. Here note the, the virtues of David. He's diligent. He rose up early, it says. Early, when it's still dark outside. He got up because why? He wants to accomplish the task that his father gave him. Notice he's conscientious. Well, somebody will worry about these sheep. No. He has a keeper in mind that he entrusts with these sheep, someone who has a task and job and a profession to do so. He's diligent, he's conscientious, and what else is he? He's obedient. As Jesse had commanded him. Just in accordance to the command, so is the action. That's what it's meaning. As he was commanded, so he did. He's diligent, he's conscientious, he's obedient. Now you might say again, well, shouldn't he be telling people what to do as the anointed king over Israel? Shouldn't his father be subject to him for all the great exaltation God has given him? No, of course not. Honor thy father and thy mother. We'll see this in Solomon. When his mother Bathsheba comes up to the throne, you know what he does? He gets off his throne and he bows to her. He shows her reverence. He shows her honor. Even though he's her king, she is his mother and he still shows her honor as David here. Now he comes to the trench that is, could be like a circle of dirt dug out of the earth to protect them. It could be a circle of wagons. They circled the wagons and there he is coming to the trench as the host was preparing to fight. David then ran into the army and came and what did he do? Insult his brethren? Oh, you jerks, you arrogant losers. You guys that God bypassed and then he had me anointed as king. Ha! Is that what he did? No. He inquires after their welfare. He salutes them. That's what that means. The word salutation means to wish someone health and peace, to wish them salvation, literally. Then we have verses 23 through 30. Providence brings David to the army, and his spirit is provoked by Goliath and by Eliab. David heard them, the words, that is, of Goliath, the wicked, defiant, blasphemous words. And verse 24 tells us, When they saw the man, the people of Israel fled from him and were sore afraid. This is very contrary to how David will respond. Everyone else, including Jonathan, cowers in fear. David is bold as a lion. God is preparing to exalt David to the throne. David hears the report that Saul will give him his daughter, make him free in his father's house in Israel. All these blessings will be showered upon such a hero. No taxes imposed on his family. Do you remember chapter 8? All the taxes that would be imposed, the right to take 10% of your sheep and of your seed, and then he would take your lands and give them to his servants. None of that as long as you kill Goliath. David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
Now God tells us in his word that everything we, do, we, we are to do in life is to glorify him. David sees the glory of God being dragged through the mud by the words of this ungodly, wicked, disobedient Philistine cut off from the life of God, not received into his covenants of promise, uncircumcised. How dare he insult God's armies? That's what he's saying. Now David wanted to have Saul's daughter for wife. He wanted his house to be free in Israel. But notice, what is the thing that swallows up all those other purposes? The glory of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things you might want. They'll be added unto you. His brother Eliab hears David's complaint and inquiry and he says this in verse 28, as a good big brother, I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. Now let me ask you a question. Can you know other people's hearts? Well, you can hear their words, right? You can understand what they say. And sometimes words are very clear indicators of what a person is thinking inside. Sometimes people tell you exactly what they're thinking from the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Sometimes what people say can be constructed in one way or another. Sometimes a person's words can say, well, that sounds like he wants to glorify God to me. Or you could say, I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thy heart, you wicked, worthless shepherd boy. How do we judge when things are doubtful? Well, I could take it in this way. I could take it in that way. Which way will you take it? Will you take it in the better part, as we say, or in the worse part? Will you give the judgment of charity to your neighbor, or will you give the judgment of a churl and of a self-righteous person? Eliab says, well, I know what you're all about. Now, by the way, this is very ironic and often is the case. Is it prideful to seek or to assert that you know the hearts of other men? Who is it that actually knows the hearts of other men? Who knows the wickedness of man's heart, the naughtiness or the pride? Who is it that sees through the words, well, it's God, not Eliab, not me, not you, none of us, God alone. So here's Eliab accusing David of pride while doing what? Exalting himself. This is why we must judge our neighbor in the better part. Not in the worst part, because if you judge and rush to judgment and you don't have all the facts and you don't know what's actually going on, you will condemn the innocent. Let us be careful how we judge of other men's words and deeds. Is there a time to judge and condemn? Yes, absolutely. The Bible teaches us so. <laughs> the Bible tells me so. There is a time to judge, but should we judge quickly? Should we judge rashly? Should we judge without all the facts? No. And David rebukes him very indirectly and respectfully, I might add. Verse 29, and David said, what have I now done? Okay, is there some evil thing that I've done here? Eliab, can you tell me? Is there not a cause? Well, yes, there is. It implies an answer. Yes, there is a cause. There's a reason for me to complain. I've done nothing wrong. 
the clearing of God's glory, the exaltation of his name, that is my goal. David was determined to do something for the glory of God, and may we imitate him and do likewise. And thus far the exposition of 1 Samuel 17, the first 30 verses.